It's March 3rd. My name is David McAdam, and this is the One Year Bible Tour. I'm happy to serve as your guide, and congratulations today. If you've been following with us from the beginning, we are concluding the book of Leviticus and starting the fourth book of the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. So let's keep on reading. No excuses. Don't tell us that you are never good with numbers. You're going to love this book. The book of Numbers contains some unforgettable lessons on the importance of obedience and the painful consequences of disobedience. Once again, we will learn that God is faithfully pursuing His unfaithful people and mercifully providing them with a revelation of His grace. But first, before we dive into the book of Numbers, we're going to finish Leviticus chapter 27. Here we go. Are you ready? We're going to start with verse 14. And as you've noticed by now, this year I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so shall it stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at fifty shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of jubilee the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty jeras shall make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or, if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord, of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited fields, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted, who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind, shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, 
then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. The end of the book of Leviticus. And now we begin the book of Numbers, a census of Israel's warriors. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadeir, from Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Jurishadai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, from Issachar, Nathanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Ahimahud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, from Benjamin, Abedan, the son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahazer, the son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagael, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were forty-six thousand five hundred. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Of the people of Zebulun, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war. 
Those listed of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely of the people of Ephraim, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, twelve men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi shall you not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. And that's the end of our Old Testament reading. In the final chapter of Leviticus, we read more about voluntary vows and dedications. There were people who were dedicated, sometimes redeemed with silver, and stipulations given for clean animals, unclean animals, houses and lands and their valuations. Firstborn animals could be dedicated because they belonged to the Lord already. These animals, if you remember, they took the place of the firstborn of Israel, whom the blood of the Lamb redeemed from judgment. The things devoted to the Lord were things that God had set aside for Himself, such as the spoils of war. The people of Israel were not to behave as other nations who often fought for the purpose of gaining their enemies' spoils. In Israel's case, the spoils were put under a ban. As we will read about in the book of Joshua, the spoil of the enemy belonged to the Lord and was not to be taken by the people. I like the way Warren Wiersbe sums up this chapter. 
Quote, The major lesson of this chapter is that God expects us to keep our commitments to Him and be honest in all our dealings with Him. We must not try to negotiate a better deal or to escape responsibilities. It's good to give money to the Lord, but giving money isn't always an acceptable way to express our devotion to God. That money might be a substitute for the service we ought to be rendering to the Lord. What Samuel said to King Saul needs to be heard today. Behold, it is better to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams in 1 Samuel 15.22. Finally, we need to remember that Jesus Christ paid with His own life the redemption price for sinners, and we weren't worth it. He redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with His own precious blood in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. Any sacrifice we make for Him is nothing compared to the sacrifice He made for us. End quote. What was already set aside under the law as a tithe could not be used in any other way. And what about this new book, the book of Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible? Why the title Numbers? The Hebrews called the book In the Wilderness, Bemidbar, because those were its first words in the Hebrew scroll. Today it is given the title Numbers in our Bibles because of the opening and closing events in the book. Those that translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt, known as the Septuagint, gave it the title Arithmoi, from which we get the word arithmetic. In the first chapter, God orders that a census be taken so that those men over 20 years old who were able to fight in Israel's army could be counted. The Latin Vulgate, a late 4th century A.D. version of the Bible, titled the book Numeri, which translates into English as Numbers. The word numbered occurs 83 times, and the word number occurs 44 times. So that's why we call this book Numbers rather than Bamidbar, the first word in the Hebrew scroll translated in the wilderness. Moses is the book's author, and scholars date it as being written in 1420 or 1220 B.C. At both the beginning of the book and its ending, the Lord tells Moses to number the people. On both occasions, it appears that the numbered armies of Israel are perfectly poised to enter into Canaan. Yet on the first occasion, they will prove their unfitness to enter the land due to their lack of confidence in God. Sadly, there will be 38 more years after the giving of the law at Sinai of wandering and murmuring in the wilderness before they crossed the Jordan as a people into the promised land. And according to God's word, it was due to their evil hearts of unbelief. God had gotten his people out of Egypt, representing their old life in the world system of unbelief, but he had not yet gotten Egypt out of his people. How do we live in the wilderness of this world of unbelief without having the world ruling our hearts? The book of Numbers gives us many examples for our instruction, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave 
evil things as they also craved. Although it looked like the children of Israel spent 38 years going nowhere, in that time the Lord was making himself known. His sovereign purpose was never thwarted. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us what Numbers is all about. In verse 19 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The book of Numbers could be called the book of wandering or the book of murmuring. As the book of Numbers begins, it has been only one month since the tabernacle has been completed and filled with the manifestation of God's glory. A residual doubt and distrust in the hearts of God's people is about to fester and keep them from experiencing victory. Their lack of confidence in God is evident in their murmuring against Moses and their discontent with their current circumstances. They quickly lose an appreciation for the revelation of God's glory in the tabernacle, picturing Christ in His finished work of redemption. They lose sight of their privilege to participate in God's purpose. How about you? What happens when you lose your vision of God's glory, His perfections in Christ? What happens when you get your eyes on difficult circumstances and lose sight of the bigger picture of God's greater purpose? The government of God is to be joyfully recognized and received through faith in the finished work of Christ. We saw the promise of that work given in the book of Genesis, the promised seed of a woman, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw a portrait of that work in the book of Exodus, in the deliverance of God's people from bondage through faith in the blood of the Lamb and God's redemptive work on their behalf. We came to appreciate the purpose of that work in the book of Leviticus, to put away sin and to make us holy. Now, in the book of Numbers, we see God's patience in that work. So we go from the promise in Genesis, the portrait in Exodus, the purpose in Leviticus, to recognizing God's patience in that work. He disciplines Israel for their disobedience. Those who are numbered as being over 20 years old in the first generation will perish in the wilderness, with the only two exceptions being Joshua and Caleb. God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted, even if he has to use only a remnant. Joshua and Caleb will be rewarded for their obedience to walk by faith and not by sight. Their faith is triumphant because it is rooted in what was said by God and not what was seen by man. Instead of living in evil reports of partial information of walled cities and Anakim, they lived in the full report of God's word and would not be deterred by doubt, discouragement, distraction, or dismay. The first verse of the book of Numbers gives us a revelation of the time and place. The Lord speaks to Moses, quote, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of Egypt, end quote. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Compare this to what we read in Exodus chapter 40 when the tabernacle is constructed. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. So the tabernacle was finished and filled with the glory of the Lord on New Year's Day on year 2, after their deliverance from Egypt, and the book of Numbers starts exactly one month later. Why does God command that the people be numbered? They need to be organized and prepared for the conquest of Canaan. They needed an army. So a census is taken, at God's command. All in Israel who are able to go to war were counted. Aaron lists them, company by company. First, leadership teams are organized from each tribe, in verses 1 to 6. Then, 
all the men over 20 are counted, tribe by tribe, in verses 17 to 44. Finally, the results of the census are tabulated, and we have the number of men who are able to go to war in Israel, 603,550, in verse 45. The Levites were exempted from the fighting men. They had already fought for the Lord and were appointed to tend to the strict requirements in the transporting, maintenance, and service of the tabernacle. In verses 47 to 51. In verse 52 we read, The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. It is interesting to note that an aerial photo of the tribes of Israel camping around the tabernacle would be in the figure of a cross. In the written commentary, you can see how the chart takes into account the proportions of the numbers of warriors in each tribe. The prince of the power of the air, Satan, would be getting a warning of what was to come. It is important to notice that the reason for the army of Israel was a divinely appointed one. The story of the conquest of Canaan is not about the plundering of the weak by the strong. It was not a matter of domination by force. It was an act of obedience to purify the land in order that the people planted in it would bring forth the promised seed through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And now for our New Testament reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. The Triumphal Entry Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, 
Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And that's the end of the New Testament reading. In Mark chapter 11, we have the New Testament's second account of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. First, we see Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 21, in which he referenced the Messianic prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as it was being fulfilled. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 Mark records the event in a way that would be most relevant to his Roman audience. He records the events in Jesus' ministry, drawing from Peter's accounts, as he must have incessantly prodded him with the question, What happened next? For this reason, not as many details are supplied, but the picture is stunning. Jesus is riding the colt of a donkey, just the opposite of what you would expect from those whose ideas of kingship involved royal pomp. Instead of riding majestically upon a powerful war horse, he is mounted on a small colt of a donkey, as some have described as more fit for a child or a hobbit. Here is the messianic combination of meekness and majesty, impeccable justice and boundless grace absolute sovereignty and utter surrender. Jesus is not going by any script written by man. He is putting the entire weight of his trust in God. Whereas Matthew records the elders testing the lamb once he came into the city to see if they can find any fault in him, Mark goes right for the action. After entering Jerusalem, Jesus makes an initial trip to the temple and looks around at everything, like Nehemiah, who prayerfully surveyed its conditions centuries earlier. Because it was late, he returns with his disciples to Bethany, a few miles outside the city. On the next morning, as they are making their second trip to Jerusalem, Jesus is hungry. Although it was not the season for ripened figs, it was the season for the tasty nodules that grow on the fig trees that people find very appetizing. In the Song of Solomon, we read of these sweet delights as the fig tree's early fruit. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 13, it was one of the signs of spring. If a fig tree were not to produce these nodules once the leaves were sprouted, you would know that the tree was not healthy. In Mark 11, verse 12, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples were listening. It sounds harsh, but it was a parable. Fruit trees are designed to bear fruit. If this tree had been healthy and doing its job, people would have been able to benefit from its presence during times of hunger. As it stood, however, it was all leaf and no fruit. The disciples eventually perceived that the fig tree stood for Israel, or those who claim to be the people of God, but do not bear fruit for him. Jesus goes to the court of the Gentiles in the temple. 
The place is a beehive of activity as people come to the money changers. Instead of bringing their own sacrifices, people could come to the temple and conveniently buy a sacrifice to offer. It was not yet quite a drive through temple, but the merchants were trying to make worship more user-friendly. They were saying, we'll find the perfect sacrifice for you. You don't need to worry. Money can buy you what you need. Jesus saw this kind of religion was all leaf and no fruit. Is it any wonder that he took the whip? And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mark 11, verses 15 to 18. The temple area that Jesus entered was known as the Court of the Gentiles, part of the temple designated for all the nations. It was to be a place where the non-Jews could come and witness true worship and participate in prayer. But instead of witnessing worship and participating in prayer, they were witnessing a religious trade show. Jesus hated that. With a zeal for his father's house, he cleansed the temple of merchandisers. And the religious leaders hated him and wanted to kill him. Tim Keller comments, Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, What an interesting guy. That's a quote from his book, King's Cross. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city once again. The next day, as they returned, the disciples saw that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before had withered. When the disciples drew this fact to Jesus' attention, he responded by saying, Have faith in God, in verse 22, and then gave teaching on prayer. He speaks of having faith in God so mountains can be moved. In the entire course of Jesus' ministry, he never did literally move mountains, but he did what he came to do, that is, to remove the mountain of our sin debt so that we could be forgiven and He expects us to remove any mountain of unforgiveness that stands in the way of our lives. For He sums up by saying this, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. And now we'll be reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 46, verses 1 to 11. This is the psalm that inspired Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. To the choirmaster of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. 
he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This psalm can be divided into three parts. The refuge in verses 1 to 3, the river in verses 4 to 7, and the ruler in verses 8 to 11. First, the refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you know this in your personal experience? Where is your security and sufficiency? The second section is about the river. This river could refer to the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley. King Hezekiah diverted the spring through a tunnel 1,777 feet long to ensure that Jerusalem's water supply would not be vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. He completely covered the ancient spring so the enemy would not know that it is there. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High God. Do you know this inner source of refreshment? Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. So we look to the Lord, our refuge, our river, and our ruler. His perfect work of redemption makes it possible for your heart to be filled with his presence and ruled by his peace. Here is a great word for the day. Cease striving and know that I am God. Be still. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46.10 Now for today's proverb. Proverbs 10, verse 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. The New International Version reads, Doing wickedness is like a sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. So where do you get your joy? Where do you get your R&R? I hope you get your joy out of hearing the Word of God and doing it in the power of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, You are our patience. Thank You for being patient with us. You are our rock, our refuge, our resource, our river, and our ruler. Because we've repented from our own attempts at self-redemption and our works of self-righteousness, and because we have trusted Jesus to be our only righteousness before you, our hearts are filled with peace. Clear out anything in our lives that robs you of receiving your glory. Make our hearts and your church a house of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining with us today. If you want a written copy of today's commentary, you can get it at our website, newlife.org. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, you can contact us at podcast at newlife.org. Again, may your hearts be filled and fully overflowing with the knowledge of His redeeming love. Shalom.